You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com In this topsy-turvy world in which we are living, black is white, up is down, left is right, and war is peace. And if this script sounds all too wearily familiar to all of you out there who are tuning in tonight, well, please don't blame me. Please blame the Nobel Peace Prize Committee for having awarded the European Union the Nobel Peace Prize for 2012. Yes, unfortunately, with that uh, all-too-predictable nature of the Nobel Peace Prize Committee to award their prize to outright warmongers, yes, the, the committee has seen fit in its infinite wisdom to give this year's Peace Prize Award to the European Union collectively um, for, quote, over six decades uh, contributing to the advancement of peace and reconciliation, democracy, and human rights in Europe, end quote. Well, that is the ostensible reason that the European Union has received the accolade, if that's really what it is, from the Nobel Peace Prize Committee, And I would hope that a lot of the listeners out there don't need too much of an explanation as to precisely why that is so, so absolutely ridiculous as to be laughable. But, well, tonight let's start documenting some of the reasons why that is a laughable claim. And there are many, many things to go through. But just at first glance, we could take at face value whether or not the EU really has promoted peace and democracy and human rights in Europe. And even a simple startpage.com search will quickly expose that this is in fact not the case. So just some representative examples of articles you might find if you were to search uh, for European Union and uh, human rights, for example. You might find, for example, uh, this Human Rights Watch article from earlier this year, EU, rights abuse at home ignored. And it goes on to cite some of the rights abuses in the European Union itself, including the fact that uh, the European Union was, well, puzzlingly unwilling to accept any of the Libyan refugees, which it had self had caused by raining down the the EU's very own humanitarian love bombs on Tripoli and other areas of Lib- Libya last year. So they are good at waging the war and good at keeping the, the actual refugees of that war out of their borders, but apparently that is deserving of a Nobel Peace Prize. You have this story back from 2007 in the EU Observer, euobserver.com, EU terror list criticized by Human Rights Watchdog, which goes on to talk about the uh, the anti-terror list maintained by the EU. It says the European Union's anti-terror list violates basic human rights, a Swiss investigator working for the human rights body of the Council of Europe has said. The present system of blacklists flouts the fundamental principles which are the basis of human rights, notes the report by Dick Marty, according to Reuters. To be formally presented today, 12th of November, the report condemns the terror blacklists of both the EU and the United Nations, claiming that suspects on the list are not allowed the right of reply and also have difficulty clearing their names once on the list. You can go over to The Guardian, which had an article just last week, Human Rights Violations in EU Countries Double in Five Years, which goes on to note that Greece... Bulgaria, Poland, and Romania are the worst European Union countries at delivering justice through criminal trials, according to an independent survey of the Union's courts. 
you can go to the commentator, EU Commission Quota Plan Would Violate Human Rights, which talks about a European Commission plan to mandate that private companies' non-executive boards are at least 40% female by 2020, thus, of course, institutionalizing discrimination based on sexual uh, gender. Uh, it goes on and on. You can find many more examples. But, of course, it goes back to the fundamental underlying precept of the entire Europe- European Union itself, which is not a government. It is not founded by and for the people or, or anything along those lines. It is, of its very nature, an unelected tyranny, which is imposing itself further and further in the lives of the everyday European citizen. So, tonight on the broadcast, we're going to be talking about this decision to hand the peace prize to the EU warmongers, what it really means, and who's really behind it. So I hope you strap yourself in. We'll be right back after this break. One day in Manhattan Clear as could be Welcome back to the program, friends. This is Corbett Report Radio on the Republic Broadcasting Network, and I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. That's C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. And for any new listeners out there in the crowd, of course, Corbett Report is the one-stop shop for all of my previous work, including uh, the previous episodes of this broadcast, as well as my podcast, interviews, articles, videos, etc. All available completely for free, for free download at any time. Hundreds and hundreds, in fact now thousands of hours of media completely free for your listening and viewing pleasure. So I hope you do take advantage of CorbettReport.com. But uh, tonight we are talking about the Nobel Peace Prize as it's well, increasingly inaccurately entitled. And we're going to talk about their decision tonight to award the prize to the European Union and what that really means in the bigger scheme of things. And let's start with that by breaking it down. Uh, a very important piece, uh, maybe a technical piece of uh, of why this is such a wrong-headed decision, but still, I mean, it is valuable to look at. Professor Michelle Chosodowski of GlobalResearch.ca just put up a an interesting article on Global Research about this decision called The EU is Not a Person. Granting the Nobel Prize to the European Union is in violation of Alfred Nobel's will. And he says, quote, this year's Nobel Peace Prize was granted to the European Union for its relentless contribu- con- contribution to the advancement of peace and reconciliation, democracy and human rights in Europe. While the EU's contribution to peace is debatable, the key issue is whether a union of nation states, which constitutes a political, economic, monetary and fiscal entity, is an eligible candidate for the Peace Prize in accordance with the mandate of the Norwegian Committee. The Olympic Games are granted to countries, but the Nobel Peace Prize cannot under any stretch of the imagination be granted to a nation-state, let alone a union of nation-states. The Norwegian Nobel Committee has a responsibility to ascertain the eligibility of candidates in accordance with the will of Alfred Bernhard Nobel from Paris uh, on the 27th of November, 1895. The whole of my remaining realizable estate shall be dealt with in the following way. The capital, invested in safe securities by my executors, shall constitute a fund, the interest on which shall be annually distributed in the form of prizes to those who, during the preceding year, shall have conferred the greatest benefit to mankind. The said interest shall be divided into five equal parts, which shall be apportioned as follows. One part to the person who shall have made the most important discovery or invention within the field of physics. 
one part to the person who shall have made the most important chemical discovery or improvement, one part to the person who shall have made the most important discovery within the domain of physiology or medicine, one part to the person who shall have produced in the field of literature the most outstanding work in an ideal direction, and one part to the person who shall have done the most or the best work for fraternity between nations, for the abolition or reduction of standing armies, and for the holding and promotion of peace congresses. For champions of peace, the prize will be awarded by a committee of five persons to be elected by the Norwegian Storting. It is my express wish that in awarding the prizes, no consideration whatever shall be given to the nationality of the candidates, but that the most worthy shall receive the prize, whether he is Scandinavian or not." So the conditions set out in Alfred Nobel's will have been twisted upside down. Nobel's will is crystal clear. The five prizes are to be granted to persons. Since its inception, however, several of the prizes have been granted to both persons and organizations slash institutions to which they are affiliated, as in the case of Henry Dunand, Red Cross, or Mohamed el UN International Atomic Energy Agency. In other cases, the prize was granted to organizations consisting of a collective of persons, e.g. UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The granting of the Nobel Prize to the European Union, which is a political entity, a union of nation-states, is visibly in blatant violation of Alfred Nobel's will. Under Lisbon's treaty, the European Union acquired the status of a legal person. While the validity of this designation for a union of member states under the Lisbon Treaty is tenuous, a legal person, particularly in the case of the EU, is not a person as expressed in Alfred Nobel's will. All right, I'll let you continue reading that article. Again, it's a rather technical point, but it is important, and I think it is important to keep in mind, when did this distinction start to become elided between these these organizations, these institutions, these groupings of member uh, nations in, in a grand union? When did that become a person and eligible for this prize? But, uh, but of course, the deeper issue here is what exactly is being awarded here? Why is this group of people being awarded for their ostensible benefit towards reconciliation, peace, democracy, and human rights, or whatever else the Nobel Peace Prize Committee wants us wants to convince us that the European Union is supposedly responsible for? Well, again, this has been a process that has been going on for quite a long time, and it's certainly not the first controversial decision in the, uh, in the Peace Prize's history. And, uh, well, sometimes controversy is a good thing because it elicits debate. But uh, what kind of debate is it eliciting in this case? Of course, the overriding meme is whether or not the European Union is a force for peace in the world at all. Certainly internal peace, well, even that's debatable when you start thinking about the war on the EU's doorstep that took place in the 90s in Bosnia and Herzegovina, for example, and how that was solved by more humanitarian love bombs from NATO, etc., etc. But... Uh, the more that you get into it, the more you find that, in fact, the committee has consistently awarded people who do not deserve this prize in any way, shape, or form. And it really does make you scratch your head and wonder what it's all about. So let's turn to another article from that's posted up on globalresearch.ca right now. This is uh, an article by Michael Parenti. It's called The Nobel Peace Prize for War. And uh, he goes on to talk about some of these controversial candidates in the past. So let's just read through a few of these entries from his article. For example, he says, let's start back in 1931 with an improbable Nobel winner, Nicholas Murray Butler, president of Columbia University. During World War I, 
Butler explicitly forbade all faculty from criticizing the Allied war against the Central Powers. He equated anti-war sentiments with sedition and treason. He also claimed that an educated proletariat is a constant source of disturbance and danger to any nation. In the 1920s, Butler became an outspoken supporter of Italy's fascist dictator Benito Mussolini. Some years later, he became an admirer of heavily militarized Nazi Germany. In 1933, two years after receiving the Nobel Prize, Butler invited the German ambassador to the U.S. to speak at Columbia in defense of Hitler. He rejected student appeals to cancel the invitation, claiming it would violate academic freedom. Uh, Jump ahead to 1973, the year one of the most notorious war criminals, Henry Kissinger, received the Nobel Peace Prize. For the better part of a decade, Kissinger served as an assistant to the president for national security affairs and as U.S. Secretary of State, presiding over the seemingly endless bloodletting in Indochina and ruthless U.S. interventions in Central America and elsewhere. From carpet bombing to death squads, Kissinger was there beating down on those who dared resist U.S. power. In his writings and pronouncements, Kissinger continually talked about maintaining U.S. military and political influence throughout the world. If anyone fails to fit Alfred Nobel's description of a prize winner, it would be Henry Kissinger. In 1975, we come to Nobel winner Andrei Sakharov, a darling of the U.S. press, a Soviet dissident who regularly sang praises to corporate capitalism. Sakharov lambasted the U.S. peace movement for its opposition to the Vietnam War. He accused the Soviets of being the sole culprits behind the arms race, and he supported every U.S. armed intervention abroad as a defense of democracy. Hailed in the West as a human rights advocate, Sakharov never had an unkind word for the horrific human rights violations perpetrated by the fascist regimes of faithful U.S. client states, including Pinochet's Chile and Suharto's Indonesia, and he aimed snide remarks at the peaceniks who did. He regularly attacked those in the West who opposed U.S. repressive military interventions abroad. And, of course, let's skip down to the one that we all remember. In 2009, in a fit of self-parody, the folks in Oslo gave the Nobel Peace Prize to President Barack Obama while he produced record military budgets and presided over three or four wars and a number of other attack operations, followed a couple of years later by additional wars in Yemen, West Pakistan, Libya, and Syria with Iran pending. Nobel winner Obama also proudly hunted down and murdered Osama bin Laden, having accused him, without a shred of evidence, of masterminding the 9-11 tax on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. You could see that Obama was somewhat surprised and maybe even embarrassed by the award. Here was this young drone commander trying to show what a tough guy warrior he was, saluting the flag-draped coffins one day and attacking other places and peoples the next, Acts of violence in support of the New World Order, certainly every bit worthy of a Nobel Peace Medal. Okay, we'll end the quote there. There are many other examples of ridiculous Nobel Peace Prizes besides, and of course one that Michael Parenti won't talk about coming sconsely from the uh, from his ensconced position, I should say, in the left side of the phony left-right paradigm. He won't talk about the ridiculousness of the 2007 awarding to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that disgraced arm of the UN, which has been found to, uh, to be relying on doctored, fudged, and otherwise manipulated results to come up with its policy uh, its guidelines for policymakers talking about the imminent impending threat of climate change and how basically 
the uh, governments of the world will have to inflict bold new taxes on the uh, on populations in order to combat this problem. It's a cry that's already been taken up by the Australian uh, uh, government and to much to the detriment of the Australian people. So that in itself was another scandal. But there are too many of these to list of ridiculous recipients of this so-called Nobel Peace Prize. So let's take a short break. But when we come back, we're going to listen to a report that I did back in 2010 on the European Union and what's, what's really behind it, its motivating ideology, how it came to be founded. And I think once we listen to some of this history and find out more about the totalitarian nature of this completely unaccountable bureaucracy that claims to have authority over the European people, we will start to see just how ridiculous this year's prize really is. So again, we'll take a short break. We'll come back to listen to that report, and I'll be back with you after that segment. So stay tuned right there. We'll be back more with more information and news here on this live Friday night edition of Corbett Report Radio. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 19th day of September 2010. And now for the real news. More signs have emerged in recent weeks that the so-called superclass of well-connected globalist elites are concerned at the grassroots political opposition that threatens their plan to institute a totalitarian world government for the benefit of the ruling oligarchs. The latest round of hand-wringing on the part of the globalist controllers comes from an op-ed in the Bilderberg-owned and CIA-affiliated Washington Post in which Charles Kupchin, a senior fellow of the Council on Foreign Relations, laments that the European Union is faltering because of widespread opposition from populist political movements. Europe is experiencing a renationalization of political life, with countries clawing back the sovereignty they once willingly sacrificed in pursuit of a collective ideal, Kupchin writes in the opinion piece under the headline, As Nationalism Rises, Will the European Union Fall? For many Europeans, that greater good no longer seems to matter, Kupchin continues. They wonder what the Union is delivering for them, and they ask whether it is worth the trouble. What this op-ed and almost all other mainstream reportage on the EU fails to note is that the European Union enterprise was from its very inception the work of Nazis, business monopolists, inbred royalty, and the other rich, eugenics-obsessed social engineers of the Bilderberg Group who realized that totalitarian world government is the only way for them to implement their plans of total control over the population of Europe. Last year, a researcher named Adam Lieber uncovered a U.S. military intelligence file known as the Red House Report that detailed a meeting of top Nazi officials on August 10, 1944, in which a plan for the creation of a Fourth Reich based around a European common market was discussed. The plan called for key Nazi officials and German industrialists to set up offshore front companies to be used as centers of influence in post-war Europe to lead the construction of a pan-European government. Ten years later, in 1954, the Bilderberg Group met for the first time in Oosterbeck, Holland. Co-founded by an ex-SS officer, Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands, the group discussed from its very inception the creation of a common European market and a single European currency. A BBC radio report on the Bilderbergers from 2003 reveals how every major European institution was founded by Bilderbergers. The conference papers show exactly what was discussed within the secret confines of Bilderberg. What's striking is the degree of consensus reached by those at the meeting on contentious topics like European integration. 
Here's another interesting, um, it's another paper from the first one, it's about the European Union. It's interesting here saying, some sort of European Union has long been a utopian dream, but the conference was agreed that it is now a necessity <laughs> of our times. <laughs> Only in some form of union can the free nations of Europe achieve a moral and material strength capable of meeting any threat to their freedom. So this is 50 years ago saying we must have a European Union. Yes, yes, yeah. Again, reflecting the fact that many of the people involved in planning Bilderberg had also played leading roles in getting the European movement going in the late 1940s and early 50s. And the fact the Americans want it so much as well because they want a, a stronger Western Europe to resist possible Soviet aggression. Without Bilderbergers, Europe could be a very different place. From his study of the group, Mike Peters, a sociologist from Leeds Metropolitan University, is convinced that members of Bilderberg helped to conceive, create and establish all of the major European institutions. The single currency was mooted first by people who were connected with Bilderberg. The sheer wealth and importance of the people who attend Bilderberg suggests that this is one of the most important political forums in the modern world. In recent years, however, there has been growing awareness of the ulterior motives for the creation of this dictatorial, non-democratic Central European government. After the European co Constitution was voted down by French and Dutch voters in 2005, the Europeans rebranded it as the Lisbon Treaty and once again set about ratifying it, this time with even less input from actual European citizens. When the Irish voters voted down this sovereignty-destroying document, the Europeans, remarkably enough, made the Irish vote on the exact same treaty again, one year later. This time after a joint Brussels-Dublin marketing campaign that broke the referendum laws of both Ireland and the European Union itself, the Irish were tricked into voting for the treaty. In another particularly notorious demonstration of the anti-democratic, authoritarian nature of the European Union, members of European Parliament walked out of a speech by Vaclav Klaus that was, ironically, addressing the European Parliament's unwillingness to listen to opposing views. But with the installation of the new president, Herman van Rompuy, who had himself attended a special Bilderberg meeting before being selected for the position in a completely opaque and non-democratic process, came renewed opposition to the European dictators in Brussels. Nigel Farage of the UK Independence Party has been at the forefront of exposing the real backgrounds of the leading European bureaucrats. President, Mr. Barroso says, I think my team is of high quality. Well, let's conduct a human audit. Now, I'm mindful that audits aren't very popular in the European Commission, and that auditors, if they do their job properly, get fired, but nonetheless, here goes. From France, we have Mr. Jacques Barreau. He'll take on transport. In 2000, he received an eight-month suspended jail sentence for his involvement in an embezzlement case and was banned from holding public office for two years. From Hungary, we have Mr. Kovacs. He'll take on taxation. For many years, a communist apparatchik, a friend of Mr. Kadar, the dictator there, and an outspoken opponent of the values that we hold dear in the West. His new empire will produce taxation policy and he'll look after the customs union from Cork across to Vilnius. Are the EPP and British Conservatives really going to vote for that? From, from Estonia we have Mr Callas. For 20 years 
a Soviet party apparatchik until his newly acquired taste for capitalism got him into some trouble. Though, to be fair, he was acquitted of abuse and fraud, but convicted for providing false information, and he's going to be in charge of the anti-fraud drive. I mean, you couldn't make it up. From the UK, we've got Peter Mandelson. He'll take on the trade portfolio. He, of course, twice was removed uh, from the British government. Yet, to be fair, he's one of the more competent ones. From the Netherlands, we've got Nelly Kroos. She'll take on uh, competition. She's accused of lying to the European Parliament. Now, these may only be allegations, but they're made by Mr. Van Boytenen, and I think should be listened to. Ask yourself a question. Would you buy a used car from this commission? <laughs> I'm sick of this damn noise, the paranoid android poised at the edge of the precipice. Sanity is gradually becoming my nemesis. Like Glenn Beck was my therapist. Yes, it sounds perilous. Governments and terrorists. All right, friends, welcome back to the broadcast. Welcome back to Corporate Report Radio. What we were just listening to there in the last segment was a clip from my 2010 video, Down with the European Union, which is available up on YouTube. And I will, of course, put the link in the show notes for tonight's episode. It's also available for purchase on my 2010 video archive DVD. And, of course, your help, support does help to uh, make this broadcast possible. So I hope uh, you will consider getting a copy of that DVD if you haven't yet done so. But I hope that is, at the very least, a good broad introduction to what is so absolutely absurd about this idea that the EU has been a force for democracy and peace and human rights in the world when it is in and of itself only one stepping stone towards the end goal of totalitarian world government lusted after by the well-connected financial elite who are taking ever more greater uh, liberties with the people's basic human rights and freedoms when it comes to, for example, uh, well, now the European Union Central Bank is uh, starting to get more and more involved in the lives of everyday citizens as it continues to demand a greater and greater uh, say in each individual country's economy in the Eurozone. So it, that is just one way in which, right now, uh, there are a lot of people in Europe who might dispute this idea that the European Union is a force for good. But I say, why don't we just run with it? Why don't we go with this idea? Let's drop any pretense or notion that the Nobel Peace Prize is any longer anything to do about the promotion of peace. Why don't we just fully embrace this notion that the Peace Prize Committee seems to have embraced over the past several years, that the prize is now to be bestowed on people who are the biggest warmongers. In fact, why don't we just outright change the name of this medal? It is no longer the Nobel Peace Prize. It is the Nobel War Prize. And if we were to do this, well, who could we bestow this prize to, on? Uh, what uh, What people in this world would be fitting recipients of a prize with the pedigree of the likes of warmongers like Henry Kissinger and the uh, the European Union and Barack Obama. Well, that's a pretty uh, tall order and uh, tough shoes to fill, but I'm sure we can come up with some good candidates for such a Nobel War Prize if and when they decide to start awarding that. I certainly have my own ideas, but if you have your ideas, I'd love to hear them. Why don't you call in 1-800-313-9443? Who would you give the Nobel War Prize to and for what actions? 
But here are some of my ideas. First of all, I guess just like the Nobel Peace Prize Committee, we, we might have to have some dispute over whether this uh, prize can be awarded only to individuals or can it be groups of individuals? Can it be entire countries? Can it be organizations? So I have some different ideas for the different categories depending what we decide to go with. If we're only going to award this uh, this prize to individuals, then I suppose the first individual that would spring to mind is, of course, former President George W. Bush, who presided over the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. And I think it's pretty obvious uh, what this is all about. But if, if we could also bestow it uh, on some co-recipients of that award, then, of course, we'd have to throw in Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld and partner in crime Tony Blair, who would obviously all be very fitting recipients of this Nobel War Prize if and when it is converted outright into such a prize. And we don't have to go out on a limb to talk about this. We don't have to go very far to document some of the documentable war crimes of the Bush-Blair legacy, but uh, because that work has, in fact, already been done. Although very few people have heard about it, the Bush cabal has already been convicted of war crimes in an international tribunal, and that happened earlier this year. But if you blinked, you wouldn't have noticed it, because it was not talked about at all all in the mainstream international press. Gee, I wonder why. So we can uh, find out a little bit more about this from Technorati.com, which did post something about this back in May of 2012. They had a post, Bush convicted of war crimes. And it says, remember when you heard where, where you were when you heard the news? It's not the International Criminal Court, and it doesn't have any government endorsements, but the first conviction for war crimes against George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, and several of their senior legal advisors has been made. A U.S. president has been convicted for war crimes, and it's the initial collection round the ICC probably... And it's the initial collection round the ICC probably needed toward raising Bush's airfare to The Hague. The prosecution occurred at the Kuala Lumpur War Crimes Tribunal Foundation, a private organization chartered under Malaysian law. It has no endorsement from any government worldwide and is anything but an institution of global acclaim, but it is still very significant because it has been created by those with power to persuade the ICC. Those condemned are Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General John Yu, former Assistant Attorney General Jay Bybee, and former counsels Alberto Gonzalez, David Eddington, and William Haynes. The transgressions are the use of torture and the war crime of using torture during war, as defined by the Convention Against Torture and four Geneva Conventions of 1949, to which the United States government is a party. The statement of the tribunal was that Bush, Cheney, and Rumsfeld engaged in a web of instructions, memos, directives, legal advice, and action that established a common plan and purpose, joint enterprise, and or conspiracy to commit the crimes of torture and war crimes, including and not limited to a common plan and purpose to commit the following crimes in relation to the war on terror and the wars launched by the U.S. and others in Afghanistan and Iraq. The evidence that they knew about this and supported it has been very compelling for quite a while. Now, for those of you who don't know about the evidence that uh, that Bush and Blair and their regimes were involved in the open use and uh, and uh, and uh, advocation of torture and torture tactics in their pursuit of the war on terror, 
I've gone over that in some of my previous videos about uh, the unconvicted war criminal uh, Bush and his sidekick Cheney uh, that are available up on YouTube, so I'll let you explore those reports on your own time. But even if we don't want to get them on torture specifically, we can of course award them the war prize for their, well, for example, Bush and Blair collaborating to premeditatively lie to the American people and the people of the world in order to provoke the war with Iraq. And again, this doesn't come from crazy speculation by out insane and conspiracy theorists. It comes from the Downing Street Memo. And if you don't know what the Downing Street Memo is, you can go to DowningStreetMemo.com, which has handily archived what we know about this, uh, this uh, memo, which was first published in May of 2005, but dates from July 23rd, 2002. So reading from DowningStreetMemo.com, the Downing Street Memo is actually the minutes of a meeting transcribed during a gathering of many of the British Prime Minister's senior ministers on July 23, 2002. Published by the Sunday Times on May 1st, 2005, this document was the first hard evidence from within the UK or US governments that exposed the truth about how the Iraq War began. Since that time, much more information has come to light through leaks of secret government documents and the accounts of an increasing number of people who have witnessed the administration's wrongdoing firsthand. There is now in the public record a large body of ev evidence that vividly illustrates 1. Bush's long-standing intent to invade Iraq. 2. Bush's willingness to provoke Saddam in a variety of ways into providing a pretext for war. 3. The fact that the, the war effectively began with an air campaign nearly a year before the March 2003 invasion and months before congressional approval for the use of force. Four, the administration's widespread efforts to crush dissent and manipulate information that would counter its justification for war. And five, the lack of planning for the war's aftermath and a fundamental lack of understanding of the Iraqi society. So all of those counts of the indictment are available, again, for viewing at DowningStreetMemo.com. For people who are not up to speed on what the Downing Street Memo was about and what it contained, it's all published there for your... Well, I can't say reading pleasure, reading displeasure, I suppose. But that's just another count to add to the indictment of why Bush and Blair should be honored, or dishonored, I should say, with the Nobel War Prize. And uh, if we needed any more uh, risk to, to that particular mill, we could turn to something that has been exposed gradually over the years. It was heavily speculated on at the time that it was happening and uh, has basically been swept under the rug. But during the battle for Fallujah back several years ago in Iraq, as part of that Iraqi war led by Bush and Blair, the use of white phosphorus uh, against civilians in that, uh, in that particular campaign has uh, long been suspected and has since been uh, verified and documented. It has been used, it was used against civilians, and uh, that in and of itself is a war crime, which has led to the absolutely unspeakable things that are coming out of Iraq now, even today, long after the American media has long since given up caring about that cesspool that they've left behind, because, well, American troops are have pulled out, and uh, now it's just the tens of thousands of contractors that are there, and also the largest embassy compound fortification in the world in Baghdad. But uh, that's neither here nor there, because the American troops are no longer there, so it doesn't matter. But uh, we had this disgusting, grisly story come out just last week in the UK media, although I didn't see it on any US sites. I wonder why. Iraq records huge rise in birth defects. Quote, it played unwilling host to one of the bloodiest battles of the Iraq war. Fallujah's homes and businesses were left shuttered. Hundreds of Iraqi civilians were killed. Its residents changed the name of their city of mosques 
to the polluted city after the United States launched two massive military campaigns eight years ago. Now, one month before the World Health Organization reveals its view on the legacy of the two battles for the town, a new study reports a staggering rise in birth defects among Iraqi children conceived in the aftermath of the war. High rates of miscarriages, toxic levels of lead and mercury contamination, and spiraling numbers of birth defects ranging from congenital heart defects to brain dysfunctions and malformed limbs have been recorded. Even more disturbingly, they appear to be occurring at an increasing rate in children born in Fallujah, about 40 miles west of Baghdad. All right, I'll let you go and continue reading that article for yourself as they continue to outline and document what has long been known and suspected that basically the uh, the illegal weapons of mass destruction and chemical and biological agents that uh, the Iraq uh, the, the US and British forces were raining down on the civilians in Fallujah 8 years ago has uh, created a disgusting and horrific problem of birth defects in Iraq, and uh, that has now been exhaustively documented and is now part of the public record. So certainly we can add that to our list of indictments for Bush and Blair as they receive the ignoble war prize, as it should rightly be known. Well, those are just some ideas, of course, for Bush, Blair, and their cronies in their administrations to receive, to become the first recipients of the first Ig Nobel War Prize. But perhaps we could also look at organizations, institutions, governments, because if they can receive peace prizes, then why can't they receive this newly updated war prize? So if we're going to look at organizations as potential recipients of this dishonor, we could look at NATO, the North Atlantic, Atlantic Treaty Organization, as a potential recipient for its invasion, bombardment, and occupation of Afghanistan over the preceding 11 years. Quite, a, uh, quite an achievement, quite a feat, one might say. And of course, what does this occupation, this bombardment, this takeover of Afghanistan really trace back to? Why on earth is NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, way over there in Central Asia anyway? What possible reason do they have to be in that area? Well, this all dates back to September 11th, 2001, and if you cast your mind back to the aftermath of those events, you'll find that NATO, for the first time in its history, declared in October of 2001 to invoke its Article 5 clause. Article 5 is the most famous part of the North Atlantic Treaty itself, which was signed in 1949 and created the NATO organization. And Article 5 is the clause that's called the Collective Security Clause. And basically, this is the meat and potatoes, the heart of the NATO alliance in general. It says that if any of the NATO members are attacked, then all of the members of that alliance will treat it as an attack upon themselves and will react accordingly. So by this Collective Security Clause, whenever anyone is seen to come under attack from an outside force, so uh, some sort of act of war, then everyone will participate in defending that country. Well, so in the aftermath of September 11th, 2001, for the first time in NATO's history, they declared, yes, America came under attack by an organized force that is called Al-Qaeda, and it's hiding out in Afghanistan. It's led by this shadowy boogeyman named Osama bin Laden, and that's why NATO will now go in and bombard Afghanistan back to the Stone Age and take over that country and occupy it for the next 11 years and counting. Supposedly, they're going to give it back in 2014, right? Well, you can find out more about that in an article on NATO.int. 
uh, invocation of Article 5 confirmed, and it goes back to Frank Taylor, the U.S. Ambassador at Large and Coordinator for Counterterrorism, who briefed the North Atlantic Council on the 2nd of October 2001 about all of the evidence that the U.S. had at that point, remember less than one month after the September 11th attacks, about what the U.S. knew about al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden's complicity and, and responsibility for the September 11th attacks. And after listening to this, uh, NATO Secretary General at the time, Lord Robertson, gave a press conference to announce that, yes, indeed, the North Atlantic Council heard Frank Taylor's evidence and has responded appropriately. They have invoked the Article 5 clause, and they are going to attack Afghanistan. And this all occurred in a flash in those few weeks after September 11th, when most people were still too shocked and stunned to really understand the significance of what was going on or what was going to play out over the next decade, like a nightmare unfolding. And uh, so at the time, not many people questioned, well, what was in that Frank Taylor briefing? What was this report that he delivered to the North Atlantic Council? And what information and evidence did the U.S. present there three weeks after September 11th, while Osama bin Laden himself was still giving interviews saying he had nothing to do with 9-11? What evidence did they present that that was, in fact, not the case? That's an excellent question. And the answer is, we don't know. To this day, whatever Frank Taylor presented in that meeting is still, has still never been revealed to the public, and we still have absolutely no idea what evidence the U.S. presented at that time that Afghanistan should be attacked because of what happened on September 11th. Yet, nevertheless, NATO proceeded, and here we are 11 years later. Almost nobody in the entire world even remembers this Frank Taylor report or the invocation of Article 5, which started this whole Afghanistan debacle. But I think it would be worth revisiting if we were going to, for example, give an ignoble war prize to organizations, then we could look into NATO and its responsibility in basically uh, destabilizing and causing so much warfare, chaos, and bloodshed in Afghanistan over the past 11 years. Certainly, that would uh, be elig- make NATO eligible for such a war prize, and we could uh, perhaps even find out from Frank Taylor himself. Maybe someone could go and question him, or we could uh, unlock and unclassify that briefing so that we could have a look at what what exactly evidence did uh, was presented there, and what did the U.S. tell uh, everyone out there about uh, Afghanistan uh, or Al Qaeda's responsibility, and uh, and even then it's kind of a leap how they went from Al Qaeda's responsibility for 9/11 or supposed responsibility to why Afghanistan should be bombed and invaded and occupied for 11 years. I think uh, that's another leap in and of itself. But again, it's just another piece of that puzzle and makes NATO a very important uh, recipient for a potential war prize. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll be back with our final segment. I have one more idea for who might be a nice war prize recipient. And uh, we also have a caller on the line, so we'll go to him after this break. Stay tuned right there. We'll be right back to finish up tonight's edition of Corbett Report Radio. All right, friends, welcome back. Here we are in the final few minutes of tonight's edition of Corbett Report Radio, and we're going over the Ignoble War Prize, a, uh, well, a potential new idea for a uh, just converting the Peace Prize into what it really has become over, at the very least, the last several years, and really for decades if you go back far enough, which is a war prize that is basically awarding uh, and rewarding the criminals for their acts of disgusting tyranny and bloodshed and murder. And, uh, well... 
We've gone over some of the reasons that we should give them, for example, to individuals like uh, Bush and Blair and their cronies, or to organizations like the North Atlantic Treaty Organization for its occupation and invasion of Afghanistan. How about if uh, if we were to award it to nation states as a whole, or governments of nation states? We could, of course, award the prize uh, to the Israeli government for its participation in the war crimes against the people in uh, Gaza. Uh, specifically, if we needed a specific instance, we could go back to uh, even Human Rights Watch, which in and of itself can be a controlled a, a organization at times, especially when it comes to places like Syria. But they had, for example, back in 2009, a report on Israel white phosphorus use evidence of war crimes, talking about the use of white phosphorus shells over densely populated areas of Gaza during its uh, military occupation of that area. So that would be, I think, a fitting a fitting uh, recipient for a war prize, the, the government of Israel, perhaps its military in specifically. At any rate, those are some of my ideas for who should be awarded the Ignoble War Prize, but uh, those are just my humble suggestions. And on that note, we have a caller in line. We have Glenn in Portland on the line once again to talk, uh, I assume, about what's happening there in Portland on October 27th, the uh, meeting that's going to be taking place at the Hollywood Library in Portland just one week from now. Let's talk to him on the line. Glenn, thanks for joining us tonight. Well, related to your theme this evening, I have a reason why the worst big global-scale warmongers you can find should indeed be awarded the Peace Prize. That's because there's nothing more peaceful than a planet encased in nuclear winter for 500 billion years. Good point. If they just eliminated humanity from the face of the planet, it would be quite peaceful. Very peaceful. And related to the library that on October the 27th, based on your last word series, I misspoke uh, when I announced the times. It's 1015 to 1245. That is on the uh, the uh, uh, the website of realitytestevents.org. And we're working on James Evan Pilato that you work with on the New World Next Week series. We're hoping we can get him there for at least a cameo appearance. I, I certainly so hope that, so. And I hope there will be a video of that uh, meeting. Will there be any people recording that? Uh, definitely. If so, yeah, I'll be happy to post it on my site yeah. and, and let people know about that. All right, once again, realitytestevents.org is the place to go for information on that if you are in the Portland area or can make it there on the 27th. And I will post that up in the show notes once again tonight. So, Glenn, once again, thank you so much for organizing this. I truly do appreciate your help. I'm, I'm so honored to be able to do it. Thank you. Excellent. All right, there he goes, Glenn in Portland. So once again, realitytestevents.org for more information about that event where they will be screening some of my Last Word series. So once again, this uh, report is made possible by all of you out there. So if you want to purchase a copy of the Last Word DVD, you not only get all of those uh, seven reports from the first season of Last Word, but you also help support this broadcast. And on that note, that's it for tonight. That's it for this week. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I will be back with all of you next week for a special week-long Boiling Frogs Post edition of this radio broadcast, where we'll be talking to some of the people involved in Boiling Frogs Post in preparation for a forthcoming new DVD from Boiling Frogs Post, a compilation of my eye-opener reports. So until next week, thank you all for listening, and take care. Announcing the Corbett Reports 2009 Video Archive. 
over 90 minutes of never-before-seen interviews and classic video reports, including... These major actors, a handful of financial institutions, are picking up uh, the real economy at rock-bottom prices. Very simply speaking, I think uh, there can't be any justifiable wars. Well, and I think this is this is all basically also a big hat tip to the work that Project Censored does. And that is one of those things that, again, is always a real, a, a big effective tool in the info war is that sort of in one link you could send in that you could send that out and have someone read that list and just go, oh, my God, I didn't know these things. It's a simple decision to make, but one that we must make quickly before the argument can be spun away and environmentalism can go back to business as usual. And uh, I, I didn't like what I saw from an emotional standpoint and from a, a scientific standpoint, from just the physics of watching the pulverization of these buildings. Well, they, they came out and said, look, the, this report is not to be used for policy. But then they set up the summary for policymakers. The absolute contradiction of that. I've always considered myself to be politically motivated and politically interested, but it wasn't something that I think defined my life in, in the way that it does now. The Corbett Report, 2009 Video Archive. Available now on DVD. Buy your copy today at corbettreport.com.